Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Salvation has been brought down in the person of Jesus Christ. We're here today because we believe that. Uh, We believe that we're part of a kingdom that is the Lord's, and it's here on earth as well as in heaven, that we're partaking of it, even with the writer of this book of Revelation, John, that we're a brother to John, but we are not in the same tribulation as John. And when he introduced his book, uh, this revelation, which is from God given to Jesus Christ, sent by an angel to signify to the seven churches in Asia they were undergoing persecution, such as has not been seen among God's people before. And we can read in the Old Testament of some pretty severe treatment toward God's people. Sometimes it's from the very hand of God himself, let us not forget, for their disobedience and unfaithfulness. Sometimes it's by the hand of oppressors, And God allows that to happen for purposes of refining and judgment. In this case, we have an empire that has gotten out of control. We have an emperor who has claimed or accepted the claim, recommended to him by his council, that he be deity. And that all the empire of Rome acknowledge him as such. Well, that gives Christians a real problem, doesn't it? That gives us a real problem. If it happened today, you might be tempted as they were to say, well, I know who the real Lord is. If I just say, yeah, okay, Mr. King, Mr. President, whoever, uh, you're a God, I can go on about my business. After all, I have a family. Uh, I I have um, important work that I'm doing. But Jesus never takes that lightly. He told us in his earthly ministry, if you confess me before my father, he'll confess you. But if you deny him, he'll deny you. And so this is no small thing, verbally confessing Christ, just as it is not when you became a Christian or for some of those of you who are considering becoming a Christian. When you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not only is that a life changing acknowledgement that you have come to understand. That is a commitment to devote your life to him. And for one moment to say, he's not really my Lord, would be similar to you saying to someone else about your spouse, perhaps, it's not really my spouse. It just doesn't fly well. And so we are in a situation here that is very grave and very serious. The day of the Lord is at hand. We've seen that in Scripture before. It's a day of judgment. Now, for those who are faithful to God and worshiping God, it's a day that they do not fear, that they are prepared for and ready for, and they're looking for the hope through it all. They're looking for, when will I get to receive my reward? But for those who are outside of God and today outside of Christ, it's a fearful day. It's a great day of fear. It's a great day 
of affliction for those who are found to be outside of the saving grace of our God Almighty and His Lamb, as we read about in this book. But for those who are saved and called the elect that He has chosen to save, who believe in His Son, there's a great day coming that we're going to receive a reward. We get glimpses into that in the book of Revelation. I mean, it's awesome. I'm kind of suffering from PTSD, from Revelation, from studying it already for six weeks, but it's, it's back and forth. I go, I go into these cycles of fear and then great joy, and I, and I have to keep reminding myself, I'm on the side of the Lamb, and make sure I stay on the side of the Lamb. And so uh, there's, there's a lot of emotion when we study this book. It's a book of life and death. John introduces the book by telling us how it's supposed to be read. He said it's signified by the angel. Before it gets heavily symbolic, though, he writes some letters to be understood by the churches of Asia in very clear language, although he draws from some symbols from the Old Testament and also from the end of the book, which they'll need to look forward to learn what those mean. And so they can figure this book out. We have to study, uh, perhaps in some ways, a little bit more to understand what they understood. But it was written to these seven churches. It was for their situation and those people to take comfort. Comfort. And today we see in chapters 6 through 11, I was going to attempt to do chapters 6 through 16. I had to back it off Friday. The chapters 6 through 11 are plenty for us to chew on. Uh, this is going to be a final call. And then in the following chapters, we're going to see the final judgment, where the things which must shortly come to pass, come to pass. Now, they're still being seen as something in the future, in the very near future, but the book starts to close down by saying this is how it's going to happen. So right now, we're still in this stage of he's calling out. He sends out angels, and they're going to judge the earth, but they're held back. And he sends out pronouncements, and they're pronouncing doom and gloom and death, but they're held off. And there's a call to repentance in each case. And we'll see in some cyclical manner. I need that clicker, I guess, Keith, if you have Ah, here it is. Thank you. We'll see in a cyclical manner, series of judgments being issued. We're going to go through two of the cycles today. I was going to try and do them all three, but that's a lot. And... I want you to pay particular attention to the seventh in each one. So we saw in chapters 4 and 5, God set on his throne. John writes, seeing him set on his throne, holding a scroll in his right hand with writing on the inside and out. And it's sealed shut with seven seals. And there's no one found worthy to open it. And John begins to despair of this. And he says, and behold, a lamb. He looked slain, as if he had been slain and died. But he was alive, and he was worthy to come and to take the scroll from the Father's hand and to begin to open the seven seals. And the seals are one through seven, but when you get to the seventh seal, the seventh seal reveals that there are seven trumpet sounds or angelic pronouncements. Words, actually. And when we get to the seventh trumpet, 
we're going to see that there are the angels are standing prepared to pour out seven bowls of wrath on mankind for their disobedience to God. We'll stop there before those bowls of wrath, and we'll include that in some of these final chapters where the judgment is complete, where the, where the announcement is made, she has fallen, Rome has fallen, where exaltations of the end, uh, of what looks to be the end times or the end result for the Christians are seen very clearly, and we'll make the break there. But today we're going to talk about these six seals and the six trumpets, but really what we're going to pay attention to is the interludes where before the seventh seal is opened, some things are shown and a call is made. And before the seventh trumpet sounds, there's an interlude. And God shows John some signs and symbols of things to come. So try not to think of this as a redundancy, but kind of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all gospels of Jesus Christ, but they take different approaches and different angles and reveal different truths from different perspectives. These sevens do the same thing. Uh, they highlight different things. And so let's begin to take a look, would you, in chapter 6, at the Lamb opening the first scroll. Now, I will just uh, recommend to you to have your Bible open and follow along. I'm going to just simply put the chapter heads here and a key phrase on each slide. And I'm going to do my best, because I get excited about this stuff, to actually change the slides when I'm supposed to. But hold your Bible in your hand and skim through and look for these things, and I think you'll get the most out of the book. You'll become the most familiar with the book in your hand that you could in any other way. John uh, says that the Lamb begins to break the seals, to open them up. And each time he does, more is revealed. In the first four seals, four horses are released with riders. We learn in chapter 7 that there's angels riding on these horses. And they go out to conquer and to make war. And they go out to bring famine on the earth and death, which tragically is just a day in the life of human history in many places. But they're, they're going out to do these things, and then the fifth seal is broken in chapter 6, verse 9, and it depicts murdered Christians below the altar, and that altar is the altar of incense. It seems to me throughout the book, whenever the altar is mentioned, it's the same one, the altar of incense. They're depicted as being below the altar, so they're on the ground below the altar, and these martyrs those who have testified that they know Jesus and have been slain for their testimony by the, the, the persecuting government of Rome are crying out to God, how long? How long before you avenge our blood? The answer, rest a little while longer. That's probably not the answer that they wanted to hear for themselves or for their brethren who remain on the earth. But it's the answer that God gives. Rest a little while longer until the number of those who shall be killed as you were killed is complete. 
How often have we said that God's time frame is not the same as the time frame we often would like to choose. But remember, he's got a greater mission in mind than we're sometimes able to comprehend. But we're going to try to grasp it today. The sixth seal in verse 12 is opened, and in it a picture of the fearful day of the Lord who comes in judgment. Men are fleeing to the mountains and to the caves, and they're hiding, and they're asking for uh, who is able to stand. The great day of the wrath of God has come. Who is able to stand? Well, we're introduced here to the first interlude. The sixth seal has been broken. The seventh awaits. But now, chapter 7. In chapter 7, a vision is seen, I believe, to answer that question. The question of those on the earth who say, Who can stand before God? He's angry. His wrath is great. How can anyone possibly escape? There's an answer to that question, isn't there, church? Four angels preparing to harm the earth are halted by another angel who arises and stops them and says, wait until we have put the seal of God on the forehead of the saints. Picture, if you will, now back to the days of the Exodus when the Passover was prepared and the children of Israel were to take the blood of a slain lamb and to strike the doorposts of their houses. Why? So that God would recognize those who were His, who were obediently following and who were going to be cleansed by that blood to signify, of course, the greater day coming when Christ would offer His own blood as the Lamb of God, but that the death angel would pass over them and he would judge anyone in Egypt and Goshen, where Israel was, was in the land of Egypt. He would judge anyone who did not have that blood on their doorpost. That comes to mind because these are going to go out and destroy these angels. And one comes and says, wait, we have to seal the servants of God with a seal on their head. John hears something now. He hears the number of those who would be sealed. It amounts to 144,000. He goes through 12 of the tribes of Israel. There seems to be no real rhyme or reason why he picks the 12 he picked and left out two, except to use this number of completion of 12, just like he uses sevens, to say that there was a complete census taken of the children of Israel, and all who were found ready for battle were sealed. It's a census like was taken in Numbers chapter 1. 12,000 from each. And he says 144, but this is significant. He hears the number, but then he turns and looks and sees something. And he sees in verse 9, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered and saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I want to pause here to challenge us to remember that for us to wear a white robe and be standing before the throne of God, not in fear of judgment, but in the hope of glory in his presence to live with him eternally, we have to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Keith, would you... Verse 15 of chapter 7. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be fountains of blessing, the prophet said, talking about these days. I want to stop here to in, uh, extend an invitation to anyone who has not found themselves to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. How do you do that? That sounds like religious talk if you're new to this. When someone believes in Jesus Christ to be the Son of God who reigns today, the creator of all things, who offered himself here on this earth, in the flesh, on the cross, for our sins to be taken upon himself on the cross, and offer an exchange of his righteousness to be given to you, you'll be given forgiveness as if you were putting on a white robe. And there will be showers of blessings that come from knowing him. And for those of you who don't, who haven't been washed, Ask anyone in here if there are blessings that pour out on them for being in Christ. There's showers of blessings to be found. Be baptized into Jesus Christ, and you will undergo the death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus went through, and that is where you'll contact the blood of Christ. You don't see the water turn red. You don't feel that in your body, he said that I see you undergoing the same death as my son, and I will unite you together in the likeness of his death, and I'll raise you up in the likeness of his resurrection, Romans 6. And so that is obviously where the blood cleanses us, where we're born again and we come forth a new creature. How could we be new if the blood of Christ hadn't washed us? And so this is the thing that we preach that men should do to put on a white robe, a white robe of forgiveness from God. His grace is extended to you today. In chapters 8 and 9, the seventh seal is broken. And what happens? Silence for a half an hour in heaven. 
just silence. Think about all that's gone on. Think about all the singing, all the proclamations, all of the, of the vivid pictures that he's seeing, and all of a sudden, silence for a half an hour. And then, seven angels are handed seven trumpets. These trumpets signify an announcement that's about to be made. In some cases, it signified a declaration of war or battle about to take place. And another angel came before the altar of incense. You remember who was lying there before the altar of incense? The martyrs who were asking, how long? And he came before the altar of incense and was given much incense that he should offer it up along with the prayers of the saints. And, and the prayers of the saints came up before the throne of God like smoke rising from the altar. Picture that continual smoke coming up before God. He said, that's what your prayers are like. And then the angel took fire in his censer and threw it to the earth. And the angels prepared to sound. These trumpets, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth trumpets, depict partial judgment. Partial judgment that comes to the earth. And it's for the purpose of bringing men to repentance. But when we come down to the fifth trumpet, we see that it's the beginning of three woes. The fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are those woes. And they will take place in upcoming verses and chapters. But John tells us that despite all of these plagues, that the rest of mankind did not repent. That's in chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind did not repent. So God begins his judgments from heaven, and they're severe. But men don't turn and say, this is from God. We need to give glory to God. Do you remember what it took Nineveh to repent? Jonah came through and he said, yet eight days, yet 40 days, eight words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And it struck him with fear. They knew that Jonah was a prophet of the kingdom of Israel, one of God's prophets, and they repented at his preaching. Here God is issuing forth judgments. He's showing picture of this. Saints, I'm going to do this, but I don't expect these men to repent. So rest a little longer. What must take place, though, for people to repent? We'll see here shortly but it seems that God's judgment alone judgment alone hold on to this to the end of the sermon please judgment alone is not all that is necessary for people to repent they continue on in their ways and now another interlude this time before the seventh trumpet he witnesses of the gospel and of the upcoming trio of beasts in chapters 12 and 13. He sees in, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, chapters 10 and 11, there's an interlude. He sees another mighty angel coming in the clouds, which is another depiction of judgment, and holding a little book. And this angel swears by the God of heaven that there will be de delay no longer. So in this 
interlude, we see that there will come a time where there'll be complete judgment upon Rome. A voice from heaven tells John to eat the little book like Ezekiel did when he was told to take up a prophecy and eat it. It would taste sweet to his mouth, but be bitter in his stomach. The angel told him that he would prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And finally, we find out the future of God's kingdom on earth and the ultimate demise of Satan and evil. In chapter 11, here in the center of the book, lies the turning point for the church, which is down but not out. Again, Ezekiel, like Ezekiel, John is given a reed and told to measure the temple, the altar, and uh, the saints that are in it. But do not measure the Gentiles who are in the court or outside the courts. There will be protection in the temple, in the church. God will know those who are in his holy temple. And church, do you remember what we are called by the Apostle Paul in one place, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3? You are the temple of God. He's measuring the temple. He knows those who are in it. He knows those who are his. Then he says, two witnesses will prophesy for 1260 days. These are the two olive trees, we're told, and the two lampstands from Zechariah chapter 4, who represent the light of God's testimony being given to the earth through the church's mission. And so while this judgment is taking place, the church will have witnesses going forth in mission, pronouncing the gospel of God to the world, but eventually they're going to be overshadowed. They're going to be overcome by this beast that arises, and he kills the two witnesses. And it seems that he's overcome them. Who this beast is, we'll see in next week's lesson. But we know by now, do we not, that we're talking about the Roman Empire. We're talking about certain emperors who were known for their fierce persecution. This beast probably is dominion, uh, excuse me, Domitian during his reign. And it seems that it's actually working. Probably like the Jews may have thought who were against Christ when he was hung on the cross. Finally, this is over. Finally, these people will be dismantled. But it got worse. The apostles began to spread the gospel all over the world. We have a similar thing going here. In this chapter, we see these two witnesses come back to life. And I want you to notice that in verse 13... Here, for the first time, we see that the rest, who were not judged or killed by these judgments, repent and give glory to God. After the witness of the church to the world, after the church seems to be down and squashed, but arises again, the world takes notice, and gives glory to God. Church, I think this is a reflection of what's happened historically. And as in the first lesson, I quoted one great writer who said that the blood of the martyrs would become the fertilizer of the seeds of the kingdom. That people looked and they said, 
There is something going on with these people. There is something to this. Remember the centurion at the cross who finally said, truly, this was the Son of God. Men everywhere began to take note. These people are dying by the hordes and scores. Men, women, and children going peacefully and patiently to their death. They believe something is true. I must know. And so we see here now this turning point. What we see is Christians who are carrying out the mission of Jesus by loving their enemies just as the Lamb had done and who even pay with their lives just as the Lamb did. And it's the only way to move the nations to repentance by exemplifying the love and mercy of the gospel of God through death. They testify of the reality of the kingdom of God and its presence on earth and ultimately lead millions to glory, even you and I who sit here today. Even we have been influenced by what took place during this time. Not only they, but also the millions of martyrs who have paid with their lives for their testimony of their belief in Jesus Christ to a world full of darkness and evil who would have it not, who were as these who were in chapter 11, who rejoiced over the death of the witnesses. There were people celebrating throughout the globe that the church was being crushed, but it says they were in awe when it resurrected. When these witnesses resurrected, they said, this cannot be overthrown. Doesn't that sound like the wise counsel of Gamaliel in the book of Acts? who said, men and brethren, be careful what you do. If this is of God, you can't stop it. But if it's not, it'll, it'll, be, it'll, it'll fade away just as others who claim that this was the Christ and that they're in his kingdom. It'll fade away. Has it fed, fed, uh, uh, failed in, in the time sense? Of course not. The seventh trumpet then blasts, announcing that the king of kings is reigning forever in his kingdom and all the kingdom of, kingdoms of men become his. And there's rejoicing in heaven. Church, when we're dealing with the world, we often resort to judgment. It's really easy this week looking at the state of New York and saying that's awful that they're allowing full-term abortions. It's easy to say those things. It's easy when someone offends you to curse them maybe under your breath, maybe not, and to say, God will take care of those people. That's easy. That's the easy way out. We're not being called here to do the easy thing. God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Well, then what do I do about it? You follow the lamb wherever he goes. Matt, you got to follow the lamb wherever he goes. If you believe in him and you believe that his kingdom is here, and you believe that he lives today, you testify that you know him, and you show the love and mercy of God to people, and you let God repay evil with evil. You overcome it with good. I can do good to people. Go back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Do good to those who curse you or spitefully use you. 
that's what I'm supposed to do. It seems weaker than me becoming angry or judgmental. It seems less effective than if I were to go on the attack. But I can see throughout history, and I can see here, and I can see in the book of Revelation, that the most effective way to win souls is the way that Christ has led us into and called us to. May I just close the sermon with a brief reminder of what Paul wrote the Romans as this persecuting was starting to intensify in the empire, as there were already signs that it was going to get worse early on. In the book of Romans, we can read chapter by chapter. Chapter 2, verse 1, remember, church, that you are inexcusable, whoever you are who judge, for you do the same things. In chapter 2, verse 29, remember that a true child of God is circumcised in the heart, not just one who professes outwardly in the flesh. In chapter 3, verse 23, remember, church, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember in chapter 4, verse 24, that righteousness is imputed to you who believe, being raised up with Christ. In chapter 5, verse 8, remember that Christ died for us while we were still sinners to win our hearts and were to approach our sinful neighbors in the same way. Love first, judgment God's. Romans 7, there's a war going on in you between the two ideas, between the flesh and the spirit, between what you want and what you're actually doing. And only Christ can save you from it. And Paul said, thank God for him every day. We need him every day. We do. Chapter 8, you do not fight sin the same way anymore. You're led by the spirit to produce the righteousness of God in you that the fruits of righteousness may be seen and that men may see your good works and glorify their Father in heaven. We're saved in this hope, he says. Chapter 10, the world needs couriers of the gospel. How can they believe who have not heard? The only way to faith is through hearing the word of God. We must speak. Romans chapter 11, salvation is not taken lightly. We're to consider the goodness and the severity of God. His people are to consider God's goodness to be shown to those who continue in his goodness. Otherwise, we should expect the severity that will fall on the enemies of God. Romans chapter 12. We're to offer ourselves a living sacrifice to God and our grace gifts to one another in service to show the love of God and his glory working through us so that people may see and he commanded us to leave the judgment to him there. I will repay. In chapter 13, owe oh, no man anything except to love him and to love one another, he says. This is the fulfillment of the whole law. Chapter 14, no one lives to himself or dies to himself. Whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. Pursue peace with God. Chapter 15, love your neighbor and receive one another. In chapter 16, and the God of peace, listen closely, will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Shortly. The time will come when your life will end, and when it ends, you'll meet our God and Father. 
You'll meet the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll want to be found to be at peace with him, with the blood of the lamb struck across your doorposts, with his seal on your head so that you can stand before the throne. This is a stern warning to the church as well as a warning to all the world and it's one of his last calls before he starts bringing that judgment down on the Roman Empire and on all who are sinning in unbelief. So our call is the same today. There's a great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by, we sing, do we not? And if you believe that, this is a day that we must get ready for. It's a day that we must be intentional about and prepare for, and we have all that we need to know how to do that. I want to encourage you not to leave today unless you have made yourself right with God through the blood of the Lamb. Let's stand and sing together.